You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money, so start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I've got a question for all of you. In your household, do you find that you are the one who always says, don't forget to do this or remember to do that? You are the one who focuses on the bill payments and the appointments and the social calendars and the birthdays. You're the one who anticipates other people's needs before your own needs and you're solving their problems too. If you are, you are taking on more of the emotional labor and chances are pretty good. It's all you have ever known. How do we know this? Because Gemma Hartley told us this. She made it actually a worldwide conversation back in 2017 when she wrote an article entitled, Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. It was published in Harper's Bazaar. It went viral, and it led to her first book called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. Gemma, thanks so much for getting on the phone with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Were you surprised that this article went viral? I was. I was completely shocked. I thought it was something that I dealt with and that my friends dealt with, you know, everyone in my little immediate circle. But there were so many women like all across the world who really felt deeply that they were the only ones doing this work and that they had never had a term to talk about it before. Can we define it? Um, it, what is emotional labor exactly? And is it different than unpaid work overall? So when I am defining emotional labor in the book, it's the unpaid and usually unnoticed work that women do to keep those around them comfortable and happy. Um, and that includes both the mental load work and the emotion work that we do, the emotion management of those around us. So what are some of your favorite examples, just to give us some context and level set? I think you did a really great job sort of introducing it. It's that being sort of the brains of the family, the person who is keeping track of all of the details, um, you know, not just one, but all of them and how they fit together. And we really think about, for example, I love to think of a birthday party invitation comes in. So you get the mail there's the invitation. And immediately there are a bunch of things that go through your head that need to be done that get added to this mental list. You have to go and buy a present. You need to put it on the calendar. You need to make sure that the right clothes are cleaned for the day of that. Everyone knows that this is on the calendar. Um, There are all sorts of like little things going through your head. Whereas if, you know, someone who is not doing the emotional labor in the household might just get the mail open the invitation and just leave it somewhere. And that birthday party will get missed. The present will not get bought. (laughs) Um, You know, things won't get done. So we have this really interconnected way of looking at our lives and the lives of those around us. Um, And I think that is what 
emotional labor entails for me. It And it often, not always, because I, I have to say, I, I think of some of these things and I don't take them all on in my household. I take some of them, but not all. But it does tend to be something that falls in the lap of women. What is it that makes it so gendered? So I think the only thing that makes it gendered is that society really um, socializes us to take this work on as women. So it's not that men don't do emotional labor or that they can't. Uh, It's that as a culture, we tell women that this is their work and that only women can do this work, that we're the only ones that are good at this, that we are, you know, determined to do this work from birth. It's just like naturally our birthright to do emotional labor. And when I actually did, you know, dove into the research to find out is if there was any truth to that, if there was any sort of biological determinism going on, there wasn't. It was all cultural conditioning. So we see our mothers do this work. We see our friends do this work. We start practicing it very early. And so by the time, you know, we're in a long-term relationship and we've taken on all this work, it seems like we're just naturally better at it. Right. And actually, in some cases, we are, by that point, better at it, but it's not naturally better at it. We're just more practiced, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, we are we are a lot better at emotional labor, but it's only because we've been doing it for so long. Anyone can learn these skills. How long had you been feeling frustrated before you let it all out in the story? You know, I had been feeling it for probably a lot since my um my first child was born so i'd say it had been about like 6 years of really heavy build up at that point uh, cuz my kids were 2 4 and 6 at the time i wrote that article and i i didn't really realize it i didn't really put it into these terms until you know right before i wrote that article right before mother's day i had started reading up on emotional labor and um you know there was there were these conversations happening around the mental load and women's invisible work. And that was sort of turning in the back of my mind. And that moment really brought it all into focus for me and it clicked together. And I was like, this is, this is what is so frustrating about it. What was the reaction in your own house? You know, it was actually really positive. Of course, that Mother's Day when I sort of had a a meltdown, (laughs) it did not go so well then. I was crying in the closet over, you know, gift wrap not being put away. That's not a really productive conversation. (laughs) But as after I wrote the article, and of course, I talked to my husband about the article that I had written, uh, because it focused very heavily on him and what he had done wrong, um, you know, he was really open to it and really wanted to learn more about emotional labor and what I had been doing and why he hadn't realized it until I was, you know, having this absolute breakdown. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw a lot of myself in that because I, I'm one of those people who I keep going and I keep going and I keep going. My husband says I have a meltdown about once a quarter which is which is i think pretty accurate you know i just it, you just go and go and go and then all of a sudden and it's often the littlest thing just tips you over the edge because you didn't realize how much you were doing and how much of that perhaps you could be delegating 
if you could delegate. There's this reluctance, I think, to delegate because of the fact that, and I guess I'm talking in circles, but you do something for so long. Maybe it's making the bed, or maybe it's making dinner, or maybe it's grocery shopping. And you do it for so long that you do it so well that having somebody else do it and having to watch somebody else do it just feels like that's really hard because A, they might be doing it wrong, and B, (laughs) it's just you know, it's a lot of work to watch them go through that process and learn it. It is. It's actually, that's been the hardest part of this process for me because me and my husband did work really hard after this point to balance it out in our household. And that meant being able to take a step back and let him learn to be competent on his own, which was really hard for me. And I think, you know, another thing that we culturally ingrained in women, especially now, is this idea of having it all. And when we say have it all, we mean not just like doing the career in the home, but doing it all by ourselves. It's a point of pride for a lot of women to say, you know, I keep all of this running. I am the backbone of this household. I am the only one that can do this work. But then we do it until we exhaust ourselves, until we're really overwhelmed over, you know, the tiniest little thing. And then when we're trying to have that conversation about shifting the emotional labor, it looks like we're just really angry about socks being left on the floor or dishes in the sink, something really tiny that is actually speaking to the fact that we're taking on way too much in all areas of our lives. How does it cost us? I mean, clearly it costs us physically. It costs us emotionally. Does it cost us financially? Can you can you talk through this? So I think a lot of it comes down to it's costing us in our, you know, our mental space, in our time, in our emotional energy. And I think that does have a financial cost, especially when we are carrying all of this at home. I think a lot of this relates to how we perform in the workplace and how focused we are allowed to be in the workplace. The demand for women's emotional labor you know, it's not just in the home, but it's in the workplace as well. We're supposed to keep everyone comfortable and happy. And we're supposed to, you know, provide a sort of nurturing to those around us. You know, women generally can't come to the office, get down to work and, you know, keep their head down all day in the same way that a man would, because we're expected to, you know, provide conversation and to let people come bounce ideas off of us. And then if we are also dealing with the emotional labor at home, say, if you have kids, you're never fully off of that job. You are always on call. So there's that thing in the back of your mind where you're waiting for a text from someone to ask where something is. Mm -hmm. You're waiting for that interruption. And so I think it does cost us financially when we can't have that same amount of focused energy on our work and on our career. And it costs us in our relationships when we're waiting for that text to come from the office and our spouse or our child knows that we're waiting for that text. Yes, I think that's something that men and women experience um, in a sort of similar way. But the, you know, the alternate thing is that women expect that in the opposite direction in the workplace where they're expecting the text to say, you know, where's so-and-so's ballet clothes? Where is that form that I need? Where, you know, where did I leave my sweater? Um, And that does not happen as often to men. Um, Mom is usually the go-to for all of those questions. So even when we're at work, we've got this 
waiting in the back of our mind that someone could call at any minute and need me and I need to have all of that information at the ready. And that's a lot that costs you a lot of mental space and a lot of focus. Yeah, no question. I want to talk tactically about some of the things that we can perhaps do to start to level the playing field a little bit. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And clearly from this conversation, we are all working really hard. And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, Fidelity will pick up the ball and work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. I'm talking with Gemma Hartley, author of Fed Up. All right, if you want to level the playing field on this emotional labor, and it is far from level right now. I found in Forbes a recent report from the United Nations noted that women do about 2.6 times the amount of unpaid work that men do. Um, You want it to become more, if not equal, then more equitable, perhaps, in your household. How do you tee up that conversation? You want to sit down with your husband and you want to have a conversation without it turning into a big old fight. So, yeah, this is the problem I hear most often is that when you bring up emotional labor, it becomes a fight and men generally get really defensive and they want to point out all the things that they do, um, which is a lot more admittedly than men did in the past. But um, one of the big things I have really started telling women is that I don't think it's unreasonable to ask your partner to read an article that has really resonated with you, to read the book that talks about it, to listen to, you know, a podcast that you hear that really encapsulates this experience to sort of kick off that conversation. Because I think talking about it from a cultural perspective where you're not, you know, focusing on the details of what is wrong in your home and what, you know, what your partner may be doing wrong specifically takes that blame and that defensiveness out of it. And so you can start to talk about the ways that you were socialized, the ways that culture really encourages this in men and women in different ways. And so I think that's a really good way to open up the conversation. And a lot of women will tell me, well, what if they won't read this? Or what if they won't listen to this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I think it's really sad when I hear that, you know, that you expect that your partner will not take a look at something when you're saying, hey, this is really important to me. This is important to our relationship. I really need you to, you know, hear this and to see what my life is like. I think we need to expect more from our partners. They should be able to look at our lives and not turn away or ignore something that is really deeply affecting our lives. I I hear you on that, but I also hear from women all the time who are having trouble to get their spouses to talk about money when they are clearly saying, this is important to me. And sometimes I suggest bringing in a third party, you know, going to see a therapist or a compassionate financial advisor just to kick it off. Does a therapist have a place here? 
Absolutely. I think that can be a really good way to do it because if they're not going to do this on their own, if they're not going to look at the work that you're providing for them, because there is a lot that has been written on emotional labor, a lot of podcasts that I've heard, a lot of, you know, great essays that are out there that can start that conversation. If they're not willing to do that and they are willing to, you know, go to therapy and start talking about this, then go to therapy. That's a great solution to start this conversation in a way that does not feel like it's an attack or that doesn't feel like, you know, they're being put on trial. It's for everyone to sort of look at their own internal biases. Let's talk about the delegating process because it is really important. We need to do it well. Tiffany Dufu was a, a guest on the show, and she said, delegate with joy, which was an interesting turn of phrase. But <laughs> what's your approach to delegating? Is there a right way to do it? And are there right things to delegate? So I fall on a different part of the spectrum than uh, Tiffany Dufu does with delegating. I actually think that you know, delegating is not a problem if you're delegating once and it's done, um, which is, I think, what she does. And I think it works really well. But a lot of women, a lot of the emotional labor comes from constantly delegating mm -hmm. because you're the only one noticing what needs to be done. So I think when we're talking about delegating, we need to be talking about, you know, a one and done delegation, not something that happens over and over again. And I think what we need to start talking about more is why we are always the delegator and why we have partners that are not noticing what needs to be done in our lives, you know, not noticing the responsibilities of running a home, which is, I think, where the big gap still is. I think a lot of couples are on a similar balance when it comes to the domestic labor or at least getting a lot closer. But when it comes to who's noticing what needs to be done, who's actually responsible, it's still falling to women a lot. And I think that's the balance that we need to change, not by delegating more, but by having someone step up so they don't need every little thing they do to be delegated. You, you used the word initiative, and I think that's the right word. You said, I don't want to micromanage housework. I want a partner with equal initiative. In other words, you were telling them that they need to do it before it needs to be done, almost. I think that's interesting because I totally agree. I don't want to have to ask over and over and over again. I also think there's got to be a little bit of give and take. My husband, and I'll, I'll you know, he listens, so I'm going to put this example out there. He likes to get up, make breakfast, eat breakfast, and then clean up the dishes. And I've always sort of been a cleaner upper as I go along, and it really bothers me when there are dishes out before they're sitting down at the table. And I know that is the most ridiculous thing, but that's my problem. Like, it's not that he is not going to clean up because he is totally going to clean up. He does that. He just doesn't do it when I want him to do it. And that's kind of not fair. Yes. You know, I have the exact same thing. I do. I clean as I go in the kitchen and my husband cleans after everything's done and after everyone's eaten. And it's, you know, this is one of the things where I have to say, you know, this, this does not matter that much. This is not the thing that's going to make or break the way that our home runs. And so I think when we're, you know, talking about 
how how we're going to balance out emotional labor. We need to look at what is serving us, what sort of things are just, you know, our own personal neuroses, which that is one of mine. Like, I would love it if he would clean up after himself, but does it actually matter? Is it going to change the way things run in our home? No, it's not. So I think that we really need to reevaluate our own priorities because I think there is that side of it where women, you know, tend to want to have things their way and to control to a fault. And so we, we, you know, when we're asking men, hey, you need to step up, you need to notice, you need to take initiative. That doesn't mean you have to do everything exactly my way. We can have a shared standard of how we want things done, but there is definitely room for that give and take. But that does mean we have to talk about it. Oh, yeah. We definitely need to start talking about it. And we need to not have this be a conversation that we dread and that is always going to turn into a fight. My husband and I talk about emotional labor and these little details all the time now. And it hasn't been a fight in a long time because we know that this is just how we optimize our household. This is how we make things work together. So it's not like, you know, we're constantly criticizing each other. We're brainstorming together as how do we make this better? How do we make our our lives work together, our relationship work better, and our home, you know, run smoothly. What about modeling for your kids, particularly for sons? My daughter knows how at this point in her life to make all the fixings, for lack of a better word, for a Passover Seder. My son has no clue. And that is totally on me. And that's not necessarily emotional labor, but maybe it is. How do we make sure that we're raising children to be equal partners? So I think really having these conversations and modeling it is so important. But I think what my kids have picked up on more than just watching us and seeing, oh, yeah, both mom and dad are doing the work and mom's not always the one that is telling dad what to do. We're talking about it a lot. And there was this really big imbalance of whenever my husband would do something like, say, clean the kitchen or do the dishes, I would thank him and he would expect to be, you know, thanked for that work. But my kids would also see me do the same work and I would not get a thank Mm -hmm. you or I would not have that work acknowledged. And uh, some, you know, I think we need to level that playing field. And I don't think that necessarily means not giving any praise to your partner. I think it means getting your partner in the habit of praising you as well, because I think it's really important for our kids to see that this work is valuable. And it's not just valuable when dad does it. It's valuable when mom does it too. And so me and my husband, it feels almost excessive, the amount that we thank each other for doing little things. But it's also really positive for us because, you know, it allows me to know that my work is seen and it's visible and it's valued. And my kids see that it's, you know, visible and valued. And so I think that really shapes their understanding of, you know, why this work matters and that it's everyone's job. It's not extra credit for dad. It's, you know, something that both people need to do to keep the household running. Gemma, as we wrap this up, have you seen any sort of a shift in how things are being handled at households around the country since you published the story? 
You know, I it's hard to say because I'm not looking in on every home, but I have heard from a lot of people that said, you know, that either the article or the book has sparked really productive conversations. And that's really heartening. I think most men, you know, whose wives are reading this want to help and they want to have equal partnerships and an equitable relationship. And they're willing to do the work. And I think that's really great to see. I think we're heading in a good direction. Awesome. Gemma Hartley, the book is Fed Up. Where can we find more on your wonderful work? Um, you can go to GemmaHartley.com and you can find me on Instagram at Gemma L. Hartley or at Gemma Hartley on Facebook as well. Thank you so much for what you do. Yes. Thank you for having me on to talk about it. Absolutely. And we will be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. Kelly's with me in the studio. I, uh, I have so many thoughts and so many feelings. I have all the feelings. I have about all the that. feelings, <laughs> I have too. all the feelings because, boy, oh, boy, I'm a lucky, lucky woman. Let me just say that. I mean, Elliot really picks up a lot of these things that that I don't have time to handle. And when he doesn't pick them up, it's because I don't let him. Like, mm. I, you know, I mm-hmm. he offers all the time and I don't. I feel this sense that I have to still do it. Yep. Otherwise, maybe I'm not valuable as a wife. Oh, that's really interesting. And it goes back to what you were socialized thinking maybe is Absolutely. a good wife. Absolutely. Wow. I'm on a different side of this conversation because I'm not married. Yep. I'm in a serious relationship, and I think we're headed down that path. And so— reading this article, there were moments where I had a difficult time connecting to it. There were moments that kind of pissed me off because it didn't sound fair to her husband. Because I like to think that for myself and everyone in relationships currently, that you know what you're getting into and you knew what you were getting into before you got married and that like the writing was already on the wall. So when it comes to emotional labor. But then kids change. Kids change. See, I have a difficult time even finishing the sentence because I, you know, I haven't been there, but I've experienced these moments. I am the one feeling like there's this sense of responsibility to remember the social calendars, the birthdays. Make the dinner reservation. Make the dinner reservation. I I do that quite naturally. And a part of me enjoys doing that too. Me too. I, I enjoy it. And I do think there's something valuable about it. And I don't see it as emotional labor yet. Maybe that'll change. But when it comes to having a partnership that's more equitable and taking initiative, That's something I'm very conscious of now in my dating years or have been in my dating years and something that I address if I feel that way. It comes back to just good communication with your partner. So part of me felt like that wasn't there in the piece that created this huge global conversation. I'm so happy it did. But I wish there was more of an emphasis on the communication. At the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you're very, very good at that. Sometimes I'd rather do it than talk about it. I know, <laughs> right. You know, no, I, I totally. Would. I'd rather just get it done. I'm a list checker offer. I mean, yes. you you know that about yes. me, right? I, I like to just blow through things, mm-hmm. get them finished, deadline to deadline. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have always operated my life that way, which is not not necessarily 
the best when it comes to communication. But I do think that some of the things that would fall under that category of emotional labor, mm-hmm. like cooking dinner, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I love that, yes. right? I'm not letting I'm not letting somebody else do that because <laughs> right. I really, you know, I like that. Yes. I have let go of grocery shopping and I have let go of the fact that there will be Pop-Tarts and other things in my house that show up because I'm not the one doing the grocery shopping and I can resist those things. But that's okay. You know, I can sort of deal with that. The other thing I wondered, and I didn't ask her, but I I will next time, Mm -hmm. is what about things that just don't have to be done? Mm. Like, aren't there things we can just let go? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a whole category of things that don't have to be done at all. And I know there's a litany of research on making the bed. You know, and I, I am a bed maker. My mother taught me that it's a lot easier to think in a room where the bed is made than it is in a messy room. And mm-hmm. I and I, I agree that with that. It helps me to make the bed. But what if the bed didn't get made? Like, would that be terrible? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, again, I mean, it all comes back to what makes you happy and what makes your partner happy and you guys happy together. And I will say I love that it pissed me off. I love that yeah. her article got me thinking and challenged how I feel about relationships and best practices for relationships. And yeah, I'm I'm really grateful she did this. But I also want to point out too that men also have been socialized to maybe not be so vocal about their emotional labor. Oh, absolutely. They experience it too. They experience it in different ways, I'm sure. Maybe some of the same ways. Like, again, it's dangerous to make these generalizations, but they're easier to make when talking about relationships. But I want to open the door for men to have the opportunity to express the same pressures pressures and how they feel, too, and what it means for them. Yeah, absolutely. To be continued. Let's answer a couple of questions. (laughs) Okay. Our first one is from Danielle. I've been listening for over a year now and want to thank you for helping me stay focused on my financial goals. I'm 30 years old with a baby on the way. Congrats. Yes. I contribute 11% of my income to a 401k through my work and have maxed out my yearly contribution for my Roth IRA, and I'm starting one for my husband who is 31. My 401k has investments picked for my target retirement age, but my Roth does not. For our age, how should we invest the money in our Roth IRAs? Well, you should be able to find a target date retirement fund for that Roth IRA, and I would look for one that lines up nicely with the one that you already have. And just do that. Um, We've talked before on the show about how target date funds are really a one-and-done solution. So I would think about just looking at the menu of available options with that Roth. And, And generally, when you are opening a Roth at a brokerage firm, every option in the world is available to you. So, um, so that's how I would think about it. Great. And we'll do one from Teresa. I'm a recent widow. Husband had ALS and I'm starting again. I'm sorry. Me too, Teresa. No debts, enough money, some pension. My home has land attached to it. The land is not my love and it's lots of work. Downsizing means first time to sell a home and first time to buy a home myself. I plan to pay cash. So what type of documentation do I need to have proving I can afford a small home? I'm looking to areas that have HOAs. I love your podcast. Thank you for any advice. Oh, and I am in my mid-50s, and husband was older and in his 70s. So, Teresa, if you're planning to pay cash, you need nothing at all. Ah, there you go. Nice. How's that? I mean, so if, easy. If you are, if you were buying into a condo community or something where they were going to run some 
tests on you to make sure that you were going to be able to continue to pay the maintenance or you would be able to weather any sort of assessments that would come with the building, then that would be one thing. If you were going to apply for a mortgage, that would be a different story. But you're paying cash. You're fine. You need nothing. How's that? Sounds pretty nice. Um, The other thing, though, that I would say is it made me wonder just as I was uh, listening to your question, maybe you could sell the land. Like oh. maybe this is e- maybe there's an easier way around this. I I totally get it if you want a change of pace, mm-hmm. if you want to start somewhere new, that is completely understandable after everything that you've been through. But if you love the house and you just don't love the land, maybe you can subdivide the land and sell the land off, take some money and be done with it. Teresa, let us know what you decide. Absolutely. We'll do one more from Rachel. I could really use your help figuring out the next stages of how to save and invest my earnings. To provide some context, I've spent the last 10 years in college, grad school, or training. While on fellowship, I've followed your advice and I've been paying off my high-interest credit cards to get the best return on my money. As I finish up the last few months of fellowship, I will have no more debt. Hooray, $11,000 paid off in two years, which is awesome. Now, I'm not sure what is the best move for all of the money I will be able to save that won't be devoted towards paying off debt. Not to mention the extra money I will have once I change to an attending position in my new job within the next few months. Here's where things get tricky. I'm in my early 30s and have only 3000 in retirement savings. My new position will contribute 11% of my income into a retirement plan that does not have to be matched. Given the small amount I have in retirement, I'm wondering how I should add on top of that. My emergency savings account is also quite tight, 2000 so I have a ways to go for that six months emergency savings mark. I should also mention my boyfriend and I are hoping to get married soon. He has no debt, roughly 50000 in retirement, and 10000 in savings. Also, buying a house is on my radar and eventually starting a family. I know, so many things I want to do. I'm just not sure how to prioritize and put ourselves in an optimal financial situation. I would highly value your thoughts. Well, thank you so much for writing. Interestingly, I was at a convention, cardiology convention, a couple months ago, and I was talking to an audience that had a lot of people who were just coming out of medical Mm -hmm. school, and they felt very behind on retirement savings. Now, many of them also had educational debt, which you don't, so that's great. But one thing I do want to point out is that your job is going to allow you to just supercharge your way through our retirement benchmark. So you're going to be able to play catch up really, really quickly as long as you don't let your life-related expenses get out of control. And so the most important thing for you at this point is going to be budgeting so that you can save a significant amount of your income. Usually we talk to people about saving 15%. Um, You may want to try to save more. You may want to try to save 18% or 20%. You've been living leanly So that should actually be a fairly easy thing for you to do. And if you supercharge your savings now into both your retirement fund and that emergency savings account, where once you've got enough for emergencies, you can also amass some money for a down payment for a house, you'll be able to do both at the same time. So here's what I would do. I would look at how much you're able to save coming into this new phase of your life. I'd probably put 20% of that into emergency savings, house savings. I'd put the other 80% into a retirement account. 
And I'd continue on that trajectory until you've got enough in the emergency savings house fund. And then I'd back off of that and just put most of your money into the uh, into the long-term savings pool and invest it for the future. And I think as long as you and your boyfriend are on the same page as far as setting some real goals, what do you want mm-hmm. in terms of that house? How much is it going to cost? When do you want to get it? Having set some real numbers for yourselves around those goals as well as dates around those goals, if that's not too much pressure, will be a good thing for you both to do. Nice. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, everybody. And Catherine Tuggle is joining me in the studio now. For those of you who haven't met Catherine before, she's the editor-in-chief of HerMoney.com, where we are publishing new content every single day. Very exciting. Catherine, nice to see you in the studio. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit about this story that is making all these waves. Right. So this story was inspired by my experience, an experience you may have had as well, which is how to reach out to people you haven't spoken to in years when you need a job, specifically how to reach out to your work contacts. It's a really hard thing to do. It's kind of like, how do you call a friend when you know you should have called that friend a year ago and now it's two years and then it's three years and you're never going to talk to this person again, except if you need a job you're going to pick up the phone or you're going to do it probably in a very awkward way. Exactly. Exactly. So the good news is that people get it. This is how your network is supposed to work. You cultivate your network over the years and then they're there when you need them. Nobody that you have worked with before has been expecting a birthday card every year since you last saw them. Thank goodness. (laughs) Right? I'm very bad at birthdays, as my entire team knows. It turns out the people that you're reaching out to are actually going to be flattered that you've come to them. And in many cases, what people don't realize is that they're actually incentivized to help you get hired somewhere, particularly if they're helping you get hired within the company where they work. A lot of times companies will offer bonuses for people who refer employees who are then subsequently hired and trained. So how do you make the first move? Right. So first step is be confident. Don't be overly pleading. Don't be overly begging. Your messages should be friendly. They should be savvy, very quick. Let the person know that you would like to establish their relationship and not just that you're coming to them asking for a one-off opportunity. So you've got them on the phone. You have a quick interaction. Or do you not do it on the phone? I mean, what's the tactical best way to do this? Either way, I think most people are probably doing email and LinkedIn just because I think that you might not have a former colleague's phone number, but you will have them connected on LinkedIn or Facebook or other network. Mm -hmm. So a message, a short and sweet message is usually what people are doing. The first step is compliments go over really well. Compliment them, show an interest in what they're doing. You know, oh, Sarah was just talking about you the other day and this interesting new company that you're starting, or I just checked out your company's new website and it looks incredible. When do you ask for what you want? So at no point in that first message are you directly saying, I want a job. You are showing an interest in what they're doing. You're showing an interest in their expertise. And you're offering to meet them for a coffee or have a quick call just to catch up on what's going on. And it's fair to say I'm currently looking for my next opportunity. But you don't want to make that direct ask in that first email just because you You do want to show a genuine interest in reconnecting with the person. That would be too transactional. I think so. That's what the experts, the career experts who I spoke with said, that make it friendly, make it snappy. And it's totally fair to say that you're researching your options, but not 
hey, Bob, I'm desperate here. I need a job. And then what's the expectation afterward? So you have to be respectful of people's time. So you should definitely say, I'd love to meet you for a coffee. An in-person meeting is always best. But if they don't have time for that, a phone call is great. Then if you don't hear back, it's fair to follow up in two to three weeks' time. Again, no pressure on the person. Don't say, why haven't you responded to me? Or I haven't heard from you yet. Just say, hey, circling back on this. Would love to love to chat when you have time. And then just see if you can get that conversation going. And if you can't, do you just give up? I would say two to three follow-ups would be great. You know, I think at the same time, a serious networker is also going to be going to industry events for networking. So I think if you're aggressive about this, there's a good chance you might actually see the person in the real world. So you'll have more options for how to reach them other than just LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks, Catherine, so much for uh, coming in and sharing your reporting. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from you. And thank everybody, all of you, so much, the universal you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. I want to thank Gemma Hartley one more time for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, we hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review very important. We like to hear what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon. Music